passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Approach God's Word. We're continuing through the book of Ruth. Pastor Kurt started us last week in this short book. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Ruth chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, as you're opening to Ruth chapter 2, uh, I just want to encourage you, if it's been a while since you've read the book of Ruth, or if you haven't read the book of Ruth at all, uh, to, to take some time this week and uh, to sit down and just read it from start to finish. It, it'll take you about 25 minutes at a slow, contemplative pace to work through these four chapters. It's a beautiful, short story of God's providential care for his people. And so I'd love for you uh, to do that. I guess even if you have read it recently, go ahead and read it again uh, this coming week. Uh, it is a, it's a wonderful book, a wonderful story of God's faithful care for his people in the most unlikely of places. Last week, Pastor Kurt shared with us a little bit of the context of the book of Ruth, and that is found in the book of Judges of all places. The book of Ruth actually takes place during the same time as the book of Judges, and I just want to highlight one or two things that uh, Pastor Kurt mentioned last week that uh, reinforce, if you will, this context of what's taking place when we read the book of Ruth. You see, in one sense, the, the book of Judges is actually the perfect book for us to relate with today as a, a people here in the United States. And you might say, well, what are you talking about? It's thousands of years old. How does that relate to us this morning? When you look at the, the book of Judges, that book is ultimately about the deterioration of the nation of Israel. God created the nation of Israel and placed them in Palestine and Canaan to be a light to the nations, to be a light of God's holiness to all of the other surrounding nations. The book of Judges, however, shows that instead of being that light, the people of Israel actually become more pagan. By the end of the book of Judges, the people of Israel are virtually indistinguishable from the surrounding nations. If you are familiar with the book of Judges, there's this refrain that is repeated over and over at the end of the book, and that is, in those days there was no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. You see, by the end of the book of Judges, the, the people of Israel are guilty of corruption, of immorality, of dead religion. It's everywhere that you look in the book. The book of Judges stresses the great need for a king for the people of Israel, a great need for a king to be on the throne, and it shows us what happens when God's people don't have that king. And yes, it's referring to King David, but even more so, it's referring to a king after God's own heart. It's referring to God being the king of the people of Israel. You see, one doesn't have to draw too many parallels between the time of the judges and today. The corruption, immorality, the dead religion that's found in the book of Judges is not all that dissimilar from what we experience here in the United States today. It doesn't matter what context you look in, whether it's politics, whether it's sports, pop culture, anywhere you look, the spread of corruption, immorality, 
dead religion in our culture, in our context today, can easily be summed up with that same phrase, in those days there was no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. But lest we think that the problem is out there, the book of Judges brings the focus a lot closer to home and says that the problem is not with the culture at large, but the problem is with us. The decay of Israel's commitment to God in the book of Judges is primarily rooted within the, the lives of the people of Israel. The people of Israel bear guilt for not sharing the faith with their children. And in just a, a few short generations after the people of Israel are following God faithfully, they're virtually indistinguishable from the surrounding nations. The book of Ruth takes place in that context. Ruth tells us that while Israel becomes more and more pagan, there is at least one pagan who shows herself to be a true Israelite. While God's leaders decay in their morality, Gideon was an idolater. Jephthah was guilty of child sacrifice. Samson was indistinguishable from the Philistines that he hated so much. While the leaders of God's people decay, the book of Ruth reminds us that God's faithful, steadfast commitment to his people remains. God's love for his people remains. And that commitment to his people oftentimes takes place far from the movers and the shakers of the world. Just an encouragement for us this morning. The same is true. Far from the movers and the shakers of our world is where God is most often at work. God's faithful, steadfast commitment is continuing to be shown to the most unlikely of people. People like Ruth. Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the foreigner. Ruth, the woman from a cursed people who marries into an Israelite family that is a mockery of her father-in-law's name. If you remember last week, Pastor Kurt told us that Elimelech, the patriarch of this family, his name means, my God is king. But we see frequently in the first few verses of chapter one that his life reveals he believes anything but. God isn't the king of Elimelech's life. He runs to Moab rather than waiting upon God in Israel. It is a part of this family, in this context, that God reaches down into history and he grabs Ruth to show his continued steadfast, faithful love to the people of Israel. Last week we were in uh, chapter one. Ruth chapter one takes us uh, through uh, really the, setting the stage, the story, if you will, shows us this extreme contrast between Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Naomi is a, a child of Abraham. She is an Israelite by birth, and yet by the end of the chapter, she's virtually cursing God, saying that God has only done evil to her and her family. She believes that God has forgotten her, and yet we have Ruth, this woman who's detestable to the people of Israel, who in verses 14 through 16 shows this powerful conversion to the faith of the people of Abraham. 
who forsakes her heritage, her family, her people for the sake of knowing the God of Israel. And it's in Ruth that we see God's faithfulness continue. This morning we're in uh, Ruth chapter 2, as I mentioned earlier. Ruth chapter 2 is all about God's providential care for Ruth and Naomi. Contrary to what Naomi may have thought, God has not cursed her but God is instead blessing her through the faithfulness of Ruth, through the steadfast commitment of Ruth. And as I mentioned, we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to spend some time looking at the last few verses of chapter 1 that kind of set the stage, so to speak, for us this morning. So please follow along, uh, starting in Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. A reminder of what takes place in chapter 1. Naomi's husband and her two children, uh, they they leave the land of Israel, they leave Bethlehem uh, during a famine, and they seek refuge in the country of Moab. Right after they get there, or shortly after they get there, her husband Elimelech dies, She uh, lives there in the land for about 10 years with her two sons and their Moabite wives, and then they also die. Around that same time, Naomi hears that the famine has ended back in Bethlehem. It's a very long famine. It's taken 10 years at least for this famine to end. And so she decides that there's nothing keeping her in Moab. Let's go ahead and return back to Bethlehem. And so she begins on her way back to Bethlehem. And on the way, she encourages these two daughters-in-law who are Moabites to go back to their families. And what's more, to not just go back to their families, but actually to go back to their gods. To go back to the God of Moab, just go ahead, he'll take care of you. I'm going back to Israel, and I'm just going to live the doom that God has placed upon me. One of the daughters-in-law named Orpah goes back to her home and fades out of history, but Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. This word cling is covenantal language. It's used elsewhere to refer to an unbreakable, steadfast commitment between one person and another. What Ruth is saying when, it, when the text tells us that she clings to her mother-in-law is that she is sealing her own fate with the exact same fate that faces her mother-in-law. She is unwaveringly committing herself to Naomi. She's unwaveringly committing herself to Naomi's people and most importantly to Naomi's God. Ruth chapter one tells us that on the way from Moab to Bethlehem, we see this powerful conversion of Ruth where she declares that she is forsaking her heritage, forsaking her family for the God of Israel. And so Naomi returns home. She ends up in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a town probably no more than 500 people at this time. 
and Naomi has been gone for at least 10 years, and understandably, when it's a small town like that, uh, everyone comes out to see the big news. Naomi has returned. Can this really be Naomi? Is she actually back? We thought you were dead when you lived in Moab. What happened, Naomi? And so all of these people, especially the women, gather around Naomi to welcome her back. Now, Naomi is in so much pain from what has happened to her in Moab, all of the loss that she has experienced, it's like this dark cloud is hovering over her soul. We see Naomi has become depressed. She's become bitter. She's resigned herself to what she thinks is a curse from God. She's resigned herself to just live out the rest of her days cursed by God. And so she tells the women who come up to her and say, is this really Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. It is more than just a statement of her circumstances. It is a statement of her soul. Yes, the circumstances of her life are bitter, but even more than that, she is bitter toward God. She is mad at God. There is no pain, there is no healing for the pain that she experiences in her life. She can't fathom God finding a way out of the pain that she has. And so she declares that she is not Naomi, but she is Mara, and she is more right than she possibly could imagine. More than just referring to the circumstances of her life, which is what she was referring to, she is actually mad at God. She is actually bitter toward God. Mara is the perfect name for her. Mara means bitter, and that proves that anyone who has their daughter named Mara is either foolish or cruel. For those of you who don't know, my daughter's name is Mara. <laughs> and yes, I, I did know that when, <laughs> when we named her Mara. Now take a step back from Naomi's life. Take a step back, and what we can see is, is really something that we can at least kind of appreciate here from Naomi. You see, unlike many of uh, us today, Naomi at least sees God's hand in her life. Naomi at least sees that God is sovereign, that God is in control over both the good and the bad in her life. She has a big view of God, that God is in charge. But because that view of God is not connected to a personal relationship with God, a personal knowledge of who God is, it's actually not big enough. You see, Naomi has a big view of God, but it's not big enough. She has no category in her life to, to understand God's mercy for her. Mercy that the famine has ended in Bethlehem and she can return home. Mercy that Ruth has clung to her rather than abandoning her. Mercy that she arrives home at the time of the barley harvest. She has no category for her disobedience either. She forsakes God and travels to Moab to find food. Naomi, her life is a warning to us, warning to each of us that our theology, if it's not connected to a personal knowledge, a personal relationship with God, does us no good. And so here we stand at chapter two. We see that Naomi is really actually Mara, she really is depressed. She really is bitter at God. She really has no hope for the future. She has resigned herself to a slow, painful death, most likely of starvation, as she gets back to Bethlehem, even as there is food all around her. But 
even here in chapter one, if Naomi would just look for them. There are these shafts of light that pierce the dark cloud of her soul. She's not alone. Ruth is with her. The famine has ended and the barley harvest has begun. As we turn to chapter two, the focus shifts from Naomi now to Ruth. But before we get to Ruth, the text takes a a few seconds to uh, interject introduce us to a new character, another shaft of life, that light that's about to pierce the darkness surrounding Mara's soul. Verse one says this, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Here we are introduced to Boaz, and, and most of us are probably familiar with the story of Ruth. We've probably read it. We probably know exactly who Boaz is. We don't need the narrator to mention to us that he is a worthy man. We know what Boaz will do for Ruth, and so we can affirm this and say, yes, indeed, he is a worthy man. This word worthy can refer to wealth, but it can also refer to his character. And as we look at Ruth, we see that both are true of Boaz. But imagine that you haven't read the story of Ruth before. You've never spent time reading this passage. You don't know who Boaz is. You don't know what's going to happen to Ruth and to Naomi. And suddenly the narrator interjects here and says, now there was a man named Boaz. He's a, a relative of Naomi. And he was a worthy man. The narrator is making an intentional statement here telling us that there is hope. There is hope for Naomi even though she doesn't see it. You see, the reality is Naomi doesn't have verse one in her life. She can't see verse one. She's in the midst of the darkness of her life. The the clouds are surrounding her and she can't see the narrator's words. Now there was a man named Boaz, a worthy man who was a relative of hers. And how often is that like our lives as well. How often do we find ourselves in the darkness? We find ourselves in the the dark clouds of bitterness of our lives and we can't see the words of the narrator in verse one. You see, the reality is God is at work in our lives. God is at work working for us if we are his children, bringing us mercy. And yet so often we can't see it. One author tells us that God is most likely doing 10,000 things in your life right now and you probably are aware of two or three of them. For Naomi, God was at work in her life, in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her bitterness, in the midst of her darkness, God was at work and yet she couldn't see it. Friends, God is at work in your lives whether you see it or not and so don't lose hope. Let's continue reading. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Ruth is a foreigner. She's in a land that she does not know. 
uh, among a people who distrust foreigners, and more than that, they actually show contempt for the people of Moab. The Moabites were known in the book of Judges to have conquered the people of Israel, and so there's a little bit of animosity between these two nations, and, and here she is, this vulnerable woman, taking the initiative, shouldering the load of responsibility to care for her mother-in-law. And so she travels to the field surrounding Bethlehem with the hope that she's going to be able to scrounge up enough food to provide for her mother-in-law and herself. And she is one of the most, uh, she's one of the poorest of the poor here in Israel, but she's not just going out to beg. The people of Israel in the law had this uh, command that required them to leave certain amount uh, of food, uh, of grain unharvested in their fields so that the poor could take care of themselves. They were not to harvest the the grain that was found in the corners of their fields. And as they were uh, walking through the fields harvesting, if they uh, missed a stalk of grain, they weren't allowed to go back for it. That stock of grain was meant for the poorest of the poor to be able to come and to feed themselves off of it. And so Ruth clearly has some knowledge of this law, that there isn't no hope for her. And indeed, this mercy that God institutes in his law is her only hope. Now let's take a moment and talk about everything or something that everyone is interested in, and that's uh, how ancient Israelite harvests work. That's exactly what you expected to talk about this morning at church. Ancient Israelite harvests. Uh, the, the start of the barley harvest was about mid-May, or excuse me, mid-April. The start of the wheat harvest was about mid-May. And uh, when the barley harvest was in the field, when the wheat harvest was in the field, there were three groups of harvesters that would travel through the field. The first group of harvesters were the men. The men would travel through the field and they would have their sickles and they would go through the wheat and they would cut the wheat down and they would stack the wheat in piles. Next would come the group of women and the women would come through and they'd take those piles and they'd bind them together and they would get them ready for uh, uh, transport to the threshing floor, the final part of the process. There was a third group that would travel in these harvesting uh, groups, if you will, and that was the poorest of the poor. They would walk far behind the men, far behind the women, and they would glean, if you will, everything that was left in the field. And so if there was a half-broken stalk of barley or of wheat or of grain that was just left there, these poor people would come along and they would harvest that for themselves. Ruth heads out to the fields surrounding Bethlehem with the hopes of coming to a favorable field. Most likely the way things were structured in Bethlehem in those days is that Bethlehem was where everyone lived and then there were a lot of fields surrounding Bethlehem. These fields were virtually indistinguishable from one another. They were only differentiated from one another with a couple pieces of stone that were set up as boundary markers. These boundary markers were unmarked. It didn't say, this is the field belonging to Elimelech. This is the field belonging to Boaz. This is the field belonging to Ahab, and on and on and on. It was just one giant field with a couple stones separating where these different ownership plots were. I can't stress this strongly enough. Ruth has no idea where she is going when she sets out to find grain. Verse 3 tells us she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. 
You know what the Hebrew says when, when uh, it, it says this, it's translated as she happened to come? Literally, the Hebrew says, her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. Her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. The phrase here is dripping with irony from the narrator. Ruth has no idea where she's going. She just sets out from Naomi with a little bit of a hope and, and prayer. God, take me to some place where you will, find, uh, you will provide for me through someone who will show me favor. Now, I'm someone who likes to write in their Bibles, and so the way I made this clear to myself a few years ago while reading Ruth is I actually put quotation marks around the word happened. Because that's really what the narrator is saying here. And she happened to come to the field of Boaz. The, the book of Ruth is all about God's providence, God's working behind the scenes to provide for his people. And that's very clear here as well. God is working behind the scenes, providing for his people. It may not look like God is at work, but it's clear that God is orchestrating things to provide for Ruth and to provide for Naomi. Even when we don't know what is going on, God is at work. Let's keep reading. And Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Boaz shows up from the field and he instantly sees and, and recognizes that Ruth is a stranger. He doesn't know who she is and she's standing all alone, far behind everyone else. I imagine that she is drenched with sweat from all of the hard work that she is having to put in. Her face is drenched with sweat because she doesn't have a sickle to cut down the grain. Her hands are raw from all of the hard work with little to show for what she has been doing. And Boaz sees her and he asks about her. Notice the words of the foreman here. The foreman, even though he has very few words that he says, mentions twice that she is a Moabite. He says, this is the, the young Moabite that came back with Naomi from the land of Moab. Oh, really? He's emphasizing that she's not like us. She's not one of us. It's entirely likely that there was a little bit of contempt worked into his statement here about the people of Moab, and yet at the same time, he shows a little bit of respect for her and says, you know what, she was respectful. She asked us. She didn't have to ask. As, as a poor person, she could just go to the field and start harvesting the parts that, that she was allowed to. And yet she asks, and then she works hard. She only takes one short rest, and she's been working the entire rest of the day providing for her family, providing for her and for her daughter. It's hard not to be impressed with Ruth. It's clear that Boaz is. He feels this way. That's what we see in the next few verses. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. 
Boaz, he learns who she is, and he approaches her, and he's here, and what he says to Ruth, that we begin to see a little bit of Boaz's character, that he is indeed this worthy man. Boaz was required by the law to allow Ruth in his field. Just, that's, that's it. He was allowed, or he was required by the law to let Ruth work in his field behind his harvesters, and that was it. And yet, look what he does for Ruth here. He asks her to stay in his field. He asks her to stay in his field. That, that implies that she's not going to outwear her welcome. She's going to be welcome there. And more than that, she's not going to run out of food. There's going to be continue, uh, continued provision for her in this field. She's not going to have to go somewhere else to find more food. She can stay right here. What's more than that? He says that she should travel with the young women. She should work alongside the young women, no longer gleaning at a distance far behind everyone else, but that she should work alongside this second group, this group of women that are working in the field. She'll be much more productive there. She'll be safer there, and she might actually make some friends. Speaking of safety, he assures her of her safety, saying that he has charged the, the young men that work for him to not touch her, to not harass her, abuse her. And then, probably the best thing of all, he gifts her access to their water. The well of Bethlehem, far off from the field. It's a hot April day in Israel. And he says, you know what? Have some water. Have some water. Boaz astoundingly generous to Ruth. And it's here that we see his character. Boaz, in a time when the nation around him is decaying, understands the purpose of the law. He understands the heart of the law. He understands that the law is more than just rigid instructions to be followed. But instead that the law pierces the heart of how we should care for the poor. To not just legalistically go through actions, but instead to actually show genuine compassion, genuine care for the poor, if you have the means to do so, and Boaz does. He gets it. He understands the purpose of the law. Let's keep reading. Then she, being Ruth, fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you've left your father and mother in your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants." I imagine that Ruth here is speechless at first. She's standing here before this wealthy landowner that she has not met before. She does not know that she's related by marriage to this man, has no idea who he is. And here, he not only allows her to work in his field, which is all that she was really hoping for, but this man has given her far more than her wildest dreams. When Ruth left Naomi, she was hoping for, she was praying for a, a field where she could get a little bit of food and stay out of trouble. She never imagined God's provision for her in this way. She is overcome with Boaz's generosity, and so she asks him why. Why are you showing me so much kindness? Why, me, a foreigner, are you being so 
generous to me. And notice that Boaz doesn't respond in the way that we might expect as Christians. We might expect that Boaz say something like, well, because I uh, take seriously my faith. He doesn't say, I'm a nice guy. He doesn't say that God offers us free grace, and so I wanted to offer you free grace as well. That's not what he says. Instead, he says that he has heard of Ruth's great selfless love for Naomi. In other words, Boaz is telling Ruth that he is so generous to her because she has been so faithful and kind and sacrificial to her mother-in-law. He tells Ruth that her countless sacrifices have not gone unnoticed. They speak of her care. They speak of her character. They speak of her heart. But verse 12 goes even deeper into this reason for Boaz's care for, uh, for Ruth. Verse 12, I think, is the, the key to this chapter. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Why is it that Boaz blesses Ruth? Well, according to this verse, it's because she's taken refuge under the wings of God. She has taken refuge under the wings of God. Boaz hasn't just heard of Ruth's sacrifice. He has heard of her newfound faith in the God of Israel. He has seen that Ruth trusts in Yahweh, the God of Israel, rather than Chemosh, the God of the Moabites. And everything that she does is the fruit of that faith, of her resting in the refuge of the shadow of God's wings. Boaz is generous to Ruth because he's a generous guy. But more than that, he sees that his generosity towards Ruth, Ruth being a fellow child of Abraham, a fellow daughter of Abraham, of God, even though she is adopted, he finds her in dire straits and in this distress, and he, as a worthy, wealthy man, has the means to meet those needs. He sees his generosity as an expression of God's care for Ruth and for Naomi. And that's what Ruth recognizes here in verse 13. Verse 12, Boaz says, may you be blessed by the Lord. May he repay you for all of the kindness that you have shown to Naomi. And Ruth says, well, God is already blessing me. God is already taking care of me through your generosity, through your care for me. But God isn't done yet. God isn't done taking care of Ruth and Naomi. The text continues. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Lunchtime comes and Boaz asks her to come and join everyone else that is enjoying some food. She eats some roasted grain. She eats some bread. She dips it into some wine. It's not the most luxurious meal, to be fair, but it is a feast for a starving woman. Who knows how long it's been since Ruth has eaten her fill. Perhaps it was before she left Moab. And perhaps it was before she had her husband die. God continues to shower blessings upon her. She eats her fill and even has some food left over. From there, Boaz instructs his workers to be even more generous. She is given access to the standing grain itself, 
while it is being harvested. Even tells the, the workers to occasionally do some of the work for her after they cut down some of the grain that they're actually supposed to put it on the ground and let her gather it up as well. Boaz is astoundingly generous. What incredible character this is. What, what incredible provision that, that Boaz shows Ruth. And by extension, God shows to Ruth that this man takes so seriously his faith that he is willing to be used at great cost to himself to provide for someone else. There are far too few men like Boaz during the time of the judges, and even today, so few are the men like Boaz, worthy men who take seriously their faith in order to care for the poor and the vulnerable. And as we close the second chapter of Ruth, we see the, the focus shift back from Naomi, or from Ruth back to Naomi. And Ruth has spent the whole day out in the field. She's been working there, gathering. She's been gleaning. She's been harvesting. But back at home, Naomi is still trapped in this cloud. Naomi is still trapped in the darkness. Yes, there are a few rays of light piercing through the clouds, but Naomi cannot see them. She pays no attention to them. And, and you wonder, the first majority of chapter 2 up through verse 16, what is going on in Naomi's mind? As Ruth is gone, what is, what is going on in her mind? Does she ever turn her thoughts to Ruth? Does she ever worry about what's happening with Ruth? Perhaps at best she thought that Ruth would return with a few scraps of food that would provide for them for a day, maybe two. There was no escape from the cloud. There was no end in sight for Mara. At least that's what she thought. But then Ruth returns home. Let's finish the chapter. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told them her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi asked, also said to her, the man is also a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go with, out with his young women, lest in another field you should be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. When Ruth arrives home, she is carrying the leftovers of her lunch that she ate her fill of. She has so much left over that she is able to give some food to Naomi. Naomi is also able to eat her fill. And then Ruth shows Naomi how much grain she has harvested just in one day. The amount is astonishing. It's almost 30 pounds of of, of, uh, of grain that she has here. It's enough food for weeks for Ruth and Naomi. Naomi is absolutely amazed, just as Ruth was before. Here is generosity and provision from God for a woman who had cursed God, who, who didn't think that God cared about her. But notice the difference. 
between Ruth's question and Naomi's question. When they see this generosity, Ruth responds with why. Why are you showing such grace to me as a foreigner? But Naomi, as a local, says, who? Who? Who has shown you such grace? Who who has shown you such generosity, such provision? When she hears Boaz's name, it's almost like the dark, impenetrable clouds are, are broken through with light that she can finally recognize. She can finally see the light breaking through the clouds. Not only is Boaz generous, but Boaz is also their kinsman redeemer. We'll speak to the significance of that next week. But Boaz will play a very important role in God's plan to care for Ruth and for Naomi. You see, Naomi, just moments before, is bitter at God, is mad at God, is trapped in her darkness. And then God breaks through. Verse 20 tells us that she blesses God for his faithful love for her and for Ruth. Some of your translations in verse 20 may, uh, there's a little bit of ambiguity about this word whose in verse 20. Uh, Some debate over whether uh, the whose kindness toward the living and the dead, is, is that referring to God or is it referring to Boaz? Is Boaz the one that, that she is praising, that Naomi is pra- praising? Praise uh, Boaz because of his kindness toward the living and the dead. Or is she praising God? Is she saying praise God because he has not forgotten the living or the dead? There's a little bit of ambiguity here. I think it's intentional because she's referring to both, that both Boaz and God are in view when she thanks God for them. But the, the passage itself brings uh, other passages to mind uh, that speak of God's kindness, that uh, speak of God's provision for his people. And so Naomi probably has God in mind here. And we see this very powerful contrast between Naomi at the end of chapter 1 and Naomi at the end of chapter 2. End of chapter 1, Naomi is cursing God. Here at the end of chapter 2, she is blessing God for his provision. At the end of chapter 1, she thinks that God has forgotten her or only has evil for her. And here at the end of chapter 2, she sees that God is continuing to care for her and for her family. The clouds begin to lift for Naomi. They begin to dissipate. While she's still in despair, she's still in brokenness, so we see this remarkable change from chapter, two to chapter, or from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And the chapter ends with a statement of God's continued provision for Ruth and for Naomi. Ruth continues to be in Boaz's field through the barley harvest, through the the wheat harvest. Basically for 60 days, Ruth continues to go out to the field each and every day and to provide for her and for her mother-in-law. God continues to be faithful day in and day out. And I believe that the passing, that this shows us that the clouds surrounding Mara's life are beginning to pass. They're beginning to fade and decrease, and her hope, her joy in God is starting to grow. And so we come to the end of the chapter. You might be saying, okay, well, what does this chapter have for us this morning? What is the, what is the point of this chapter? Perhaps Ruth chapter 2 is here to just challenge us to have the same character as, as Ruth, right? 
to, to be a, a generous, loving person like Ruth, to have that same sort of faith that Ruth has. Remember the contrast between Naomi and Ruth. Naomi is a daughter of, of Abraham by birth who has no faith, whereas Ruth is a daughter of Moab who has a faith that rivals Abraham himself. Maybe we're supposed to have that same faith. Maybe we're supposed to have that same character, whether we're men or women, to care for the weak, to be faithful in providing care for those that we have committed ourselves to. And indeed, that is something that we should strive toward, that we should seek to have that same character, that same humility that we see from Ruth throughout this chapter. But we're missing the point if we just stop there. So maybe the, the chapter is here to challenge us to be generous, such as Boaz, to be like Boaz, to go beyond the requirements of the law, but to the heart of God and what he desires for us, to be radically generous toward those that God places in our path, to see ourselves as an extension of God's provision for those who are around us. And again, it's a noble goal, to be like Boaz to seek that same sort of character, to seek the same opportunities to care for others. But again, we would be missing the point, the beauty, the power of this passage if we were to stop there. The problem with those two uh, applications, if you will, is they're too us-centered. They're too man-centered. They're focused on what we must do. They're not speaking to who God is. You see, the book of Ruth reminds us that God isn't done with us yet. Ruth 2 shows us the awakening of Naomi's faith. It speaks to the, the one who, who should have led her daughter-in-law, a pagan, to, to, to faith, is now following in her daughter-in-law's footsteps. Remember Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. I mentioned it was the, the key point of this entire passage, that God is providing for Ruth. He's providing for Naomi because Ruth has placed her faith in the God of Israel. She has sought refuge in the shadow of his wings. Ruth the Moabite likely knew very little about the God of Israel, and yet she knew enough. She knew that seeking refuge under the shadow of his wings was far better than anything that Moab could offer. You see, the book of Ruth reminds us that when life becomes bitter, we're forced with really two options. We can, like Naomi, grow bitter toward God, or like Ruth, we can run to the refuge of our great provider. Indeed, that's really the, the key focus of this passage. When life seems bitter, God provides to those who seek refuge in him. When your life seems bitter, God provides for those who seek refuge in him. Ruth 2 does not discount the bitterness of life that often faces us. To seek refuge in God doesn't mean that you have to minimize the pain of your life. It doesn't mean that you have to minimize the, the pain of, of loss, whether that's a loved one, whether that's your own health, whether that's financial security, whether that's a job or, or a relationship or anything else. It doesn't mean we have to minimize the pain of those losses, but it is to, in the deepest possible pain, in the deepest darkness that faces us, to run to the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. Ruth, too, reminds us that in our bitterness, God will always provide for us, for those who seek refuge in him. There is no need to run to Moab. There is no need to trust in your own strength, to trust in your own ability to provide. 
but to run to the shelter of the strong, beautiful wings of the Almighty. When we were beginning uh, this morning, I, I cracked an offhanded joke about my daughter's name being Mara. I mentioned, yes, my, my daughter's name is Mara, and my wife and I knew that when we were going into it, what it meant. But here's uh, the, the truth about her name. It, it's an intentional reminder to my wife and I. Hopefully it's an intentional reminder to my daughter someday uh, of this truth. That when life seems bitter, God provides for us when we seek refuge in the shadow of his wings. Her first name is Mara, means bitter. Uh, her middle name is Evangeline, which means gospel, roughly. It's a reminder to us that life without God is indeed bitter. But when we seek refuge in the shadow of his wings, when we seek refuge in the gospel, God will provide for us. Indeed, God has already provided for us. His son is the greatest provision that we could ever seek, that we could ever ask for. It's what we desperately need you see, Ruth, too, in, in one sense, is telling us that the provision of the gospel doesn't just help us when we're down. It helps us when we were dead. It doesn't give us what our sins deserve. It's that provision that showers us with mercy when our lives were indeed bitter because they were without God. It is that mercy of the gospel that is available for us when we take shadow or take refuge in the shadow of his wings. When life seems bitter, God provides for those who seek refuge in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great reminder that it is that you love us, that you care for us, that you desire to take care of us and that you will take care of us when we seek refuge in the shadow of your wings. Help us to do so, God. When life comes at us and life is bitter, to not be bitter toward you, but instead to run to you, to cling to you, to trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.